Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together, we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Hi, and welcome to uh, Pete and Gary. Uh, I'm Pete, and who are you, Gary? I'm Gary, and this, Pete, is a special, this is a chatternatter. Oh, that's lovely. Who are we chatternattering with? Well, today, Pete, we're very, very lucky. We're joined by Matt McLaughlin <laughs> from Australia. Ooh, that's a long way away. It is. That's, hello, it's... hello, Jets. Is it my turn to talk now? No, <laughs> you, you've obviously, obviously you've never listened to a chat, and the guests don't get a word in. No, we just rabbit on and on. And this time today, Gary, what we're going to rabbit on and on about is uh, the Cowra breakout because Matt's written a book about it. Uh, you looking forward to that, Gary? I am, because as you know, I am uh, well versed in the Cowra breakout and and all things about it. Yeah, liar. Anyway, Matt, your turn. My turn. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, it's going to be a good chat. I'm looking forward to it. New book out called The Cowra Breakout, um, which I think um, I think our Aussie listeners may uh, have heard of. Uh, but it'll probably be a bit of a new story to people there in the UK and our American listeners in particular. Um, but it's a good story. It's a good World War II story, so a little bit outside the area I normally do, um, about a breakout of Japanese prisoners from a prisoner of war camp in Australia in 1944. So, yeah, it's good. The book's out, and it's a, a good story to tell. Could now, you just give us a little bit of background, uh, Matt? So so where is Cowra in the country? Okay, it's so not Cowra, in the country. Yeah, it's in a whole different country. Yeah, you, you can't get here by no. bus. It's, I thought it was by Clacton. Cowra is um, a little town in the middle of regional New South Wales. So that's the state that Sydney is in. So it's about oh, 400 kilometres. Sydney. <laughs> well, you're well on your way then. It's 400 kilometres west of Sydney. So once you get to Sydney, Gary, keep going. Um, and it's way out in the middle of nowhere. But that was kind of the point because during the Second World War when we were capturing prisoners, I mean, it's the first really fascinating thing about the whole story is that we were capturing Italians. When I say we, I mean the Australians were capturing Italians in North Africa and then Japanese in the Pacific and were actually sending them all the way back to Australia. Until I really started looking into this story, I was, uh, you know, I didn't realise how many prisoners were actually shipped all the way back to Australia and not just prisoners the Australians had been capturing, but when the Americans were capturing Japanese in Guadalcanal and other Pacific Islands, they were also sending them back to Australia as well. So Australia became a bit of a collecting hub for prisoners of war from all over the world. And so 
by the mid 40s, you know, by 42, 43, there were thousands and thousands of Italians and Japanese in this isolated little outpost. And we actually had, Kara was actually one of seven prisoner war camps we had scattered across Australia throughout the war. Now, there's a cracking diagram in the uh, in the book, uh, which made it, makes it very clear. Uh, I'm sure you drew that with your crayons and the rest of it. <laughs> but um, the uh, what? T- t- just describe a bit the, the the layout of the camp because it's quite important to the story, isn't it? How the camp's laid out and 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 what ha- to what happens there. Yeah, it was a really interesting one, Pete. The looking at because that was the the fundamental to the whole story of breaking out of a camp was what was the camp like they were breaking out of, obviously. And it was a funny one when I looked it up, is that because the camp was originally intended for Italian prisoners of war and they'd heard all the stories about the Italians surrendering en masse in North Africa, the real feeling I had when I read the original documents about it was that it was the camp itself was more to do with a demonstration that you are a prisoner now on the other side of the world. And Cowra was selected for that reason as well, that it was a very long way away from anywhere. So I think the philosophy was that the remoteness of the location would uh, play a big part in the feeling of captivity that the prisoners had. So when it came to actually constructing a camp, it's nothing like we would imagine from Hollywood movies of, you know, when we see the Starlag camps in, you know, with the Germans marching around with multiple lines of, you know, very, very high, 20-foot high fences with coils of barbed wire on them. It was nothing like that. The fences were only about five feet high. There were three, three lines of fences, but only about five feet high. And basically just coils of barbed wire wrapped all around. So it, it was, as I said in the book, it was a good impediment if you were going to stop someone from just scarpering off into the countryside. But they, they weren't particularly well fenced in within the camp. The camp itself was divided into four compounds. So two of the compounds held Italian prisoners. One of them held a bit of a mixed bag of Japanese officers um, and like Korean and Taiwanese labourers who'd been captured while working for the Japanese. Uh, So that was one sort of mixed bag. But the one we're most focused on was B Compound, and B Compound held all the enlisted men, Japanese enlisted men and Japanese NCOs. And that compound was designed to hold about 500 men, um, but by the time of the breakout, there were 1,104 Japanese prisoners, surly, angry Japanese prisoners crammed into this this compound. Um, And then imagine Australians around there with machine guns and rifles, and, and that was basically the recipe for disaster. And who were the uh, who were uh, the guards, as it were, uh, the Australian guards? I believe it was a militia, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Well, there's the Twenty Second Garrison Battalion. So these are an interesting bunch of blokes as well. And what I got most out of the book was telling the story of all these people because I'm always fascinated with those chapters of history where you get this strange collection of very different people from all across the globe who then come together because an incident occurred that they were all involved in. And the Garrison Battalion certainly summed that up. They called them the Olds and Bolds. Because a lot of them were World War One men who'd been, yeah, you relate, gentlemen. Um, a lot of them were World War One men who had been too young to fight in the First World War, but now were too old to fight in the Second World War. Um, or they'd been men that had been fighting on the front lines and had been wounded, too badly wounded to return to combat. Or just men who, for whatever reason, weren't considered fit for combat. So they were too sick or too old or injuries. You know, some of them had farming injuries that meant they couldn't serve on the front lines. So quite a mixed bag of men. Um, and the important thing to say is that getting garrison duty to guard a bunch of Japanese prisoners in the middle of the bush in Australia was not exactly considered a prime posting. You know, these men wanted to be on the front lines fighting, not stuck in the back blocks at Cowra. Yeah, you say in one point that there is <clears throat> much in in prisoners, the, the prisoners, uh, they're, they're, they're isolated, they've got bugger all to do. 
And yeah, I, I mean, Cowra's, I mean, Cowra today is a good town. I like, I love going out to Cowra and seeing the sights. But um, if you imagine so 1944, tactful. exactly. Well, the good people of Cowra, I'm sure, are listening. It's, it is a good town, and we'll more of that later on. But, um, the, you know, in 1944, there was a big army training camp at Cowra as well, which featured in the story. So you had this bizarre mix of 18-year-old, very raw recruits obviously going out on the town whenever they could and chatting up the local girls and filling up the pubs. And then the uh, the old guys out from the prisoner war camp. And so it was a very strange dynamic. And, you know, Cowra had a bit of a, you know, it had a picture house, it had a few pubs, but there wasn't a lot to do there. And it's fair to say that a lot of the men, even though they got on with the job, you know, this was their job in the war to, to guard these prisoners, a lot of them were pretty resentful that they were stuck out there doing this job. And that led to a lot of consequences during the breakout. Now, yeah, what, so, one of the things, no, no, it's my turn, definitely. That was a joke, the previous one. One of the, one of the things I most liked about the book was that you go through uh, some example prisoners, so uh, Japanese prisoners. So you look at their, their backstory, how they came to be there, and, and, and that brings you to be able to tell bits about the, the, the raid on Darwin and other such things. Um, did you find it difficult to, to research into those particular individuals or did they sort of fall into your lap? Well, I mean, you guys know this from writing your own books as well, but it's funny how the story takes on a bit of a life of its own that um, I wanted to paint a picture. I, I didn't want people to think that the Cowra breakout was the start and end of the story because it was two hours effectively on one night in 1944. So I wanted to say, well, who were these people? And again, what I said before about different people coming together so I did want to tell some of those backstories, but I didn't realise how rich the stories would be and how involved I'd get in telling those stories. So that was supposed to be just a small couple of introductory paragraphs, but in the end became entire chapters in the book because I just really wanted to tell their story. And then weaving that through the historic narrative, I think really made it a much more emotive story and it made it a story you could relate to a lot more. So yeah, I told you know I told the story of... Uh, Hajime Toyishima, who was a Zero pilot who actually flew at Pearl Harbor uh, and then was shot down over Darwin and became our first prisoner, our first Japanese prisoner of the war. Um, so there was a story of an infantryman called uh, Mariki. He, he had a fascinating story being wounded and captured in New Guinea. Um, the story of some other naval aviators who were shot down when their, um, their observation plane was shot down uh, north of Australia. Um, so a whole range of both Army and Navy men who became the prisoners. But also then, yeah, some of the stories of the of the Australians about what they'd been up to before they came to the camp, like Harry Doncaster and the and the blokes on the machine guns. So there was a whole range of really good backstories. Um, and as I said, I think it just gave a lot more depth to the um, to the story of the of the breakout itself. One of the things that interested me, Matt, was that the Italians seemed to be quite accepting of the situation, but for the Japanese, of course. It was a shame to to be in captivity and and to have surrendered effectively, and do you think that contributed to the friction between them and the guards at their camp? Yeah, absolutely, and I I might actually break that down into two parts because it's worth it's worth noting the distinction. So yeah, we'll get to the Japanese in a minute and their motivations for breaking out of the camp. But you're right with the Italians; they were incredibly docile. Even the Japanese prisoners couldn't understand the Italians and some of the quotes I enjoyed most in the book were what the Japanese had to say about the Italians and how even though they were supposed to be on the same side, how little they shared in common except for the fact that they were all prisoners. Um, but the Italians, if you imagine, you know, the, we, we all know about Italy during the Second World War, the, the, they surrendered in large numbers. They weren't particularly dedicated to the cause. A lot of them were conscripts. They didn't have much interest in fighting. And so, you know, especially in North Africa, it wasn't, they, they fought a bit more spiritedly in, uh, in Italy, but... 
in North Africa, a lot of them were not particularly interested in fighting. They surrendered pretty readily. And then once they surrendered, they, um, they were pretty docile prisoners. And so the Australians realised that they had this sort of free labour force. A lot of the Italians were farm workers and they had a bit of a access to this sort of free labour force. And so they would send the Italians out to local farms, completely unsupervised, um, and that led to all sorts of interesting occurrences that I did. I saw that bit. The sex raises its <laughs> ugly head. You're clearly shocked by the details of that whole incident between Mr. Oh Smith God. and the Italian. Oh, Vito, yeah. I, I, I found this document and it was just it was lying just in a whole different section of papers. I don't even know where it came from. But it detailed just this this Italian prison and this really sordid affair with the farmer's wife and how distressing the whole thing was and the Italian eventually saying, I want to be sent back to the camp. So the Italian <laughs> preferred to be back in the prison camp than having to uh, put up with the uh, advances of this uh, of this lady on the farm, which he did succumb to, I should I should mention. But so that was the thing. I mean, my favourite anecdote that I always tell about to demonstrate what the Italians were like is one day a bunch of them went out on a work party completely unsupervised in a truck, but at night time when it was time to come back to the camp, the truck got a flat tyre. By the time they fixed it and got back to the camp, the camp was all locked up for the night and all the gates were closed, everything, and the searchlights were going around, and the Italians had to bang on the door of the camp until the Australians came in and let them back into the camp. So <clears throat> the Italians, that was a fun part of the story, was talking just about the Italian experience and uh, very different to the Japanese. The main part of your question, Gary, was the what the Japanese were like. Um and shame is probably the best word we have for it in English, but doesn't begin to um, to delve into the depth of what they were feeling. So the, the best way to describe it is when a Japanese man left to go to the front during the Second World War and his family and his community wished him all the best, they weren't saying thank you for your sacrifice to go off and fight. They were saying thank you for your sacrifice to go off and die. So they were not expected to return. And obviously the shame of capture was something that was completely abhorrent to them. And so the when a Japanese soldier went missing in this regard, everyone just assumed he was dead. So his family back in Japan was told that he'd been killed. His family would hold a funeral service for him. And they'd proudly say, you know, our son gave his life for the empire. And the Japanese in the camp knew this. Um, they were also very frustrated by the fact that they hadn't managed to die on the battlefield. They'd seen thousands of their comrades reaching this noble, heroic death for the empire all around them, and somehow they'd missed out. Uh, usually that was because they were too sick or wounded to resist capture. It wasn't often that a Japanese just gave themselves up. Usually they, they, you know, they, they, they'd been shot up and they woke up in hospital and realised they'd been captured. Um, so they called themselves ghosts. They said, we're trapped between these two lives. We can never go back to Japan. And yet here we are just sitting around in this camp. We're not doing anything to contribute to the war effort anymore. We should have died on the battlefield. And so it just bred these immense feelings of we have to do something to earn back our honour, that we've disgraced our families, we've disgraced our communities, and we have to do something to revive this honour that we've now lost. So the, the, the seeds of the Kara breakout had been sown months before um, it actually occurred, and the Japanese didn't quite know what they were going to do, but they knew they had to do something. And that was a pretty common occurrence in Japanese prisoner war camps um, all around the Pacific. It was pretty standard that Japanese would eventually rise up and, and cause trouble if given a chance. Now, one of the things, uh, again, from your book that I liked was uh, you, you managed to find this story of this this Japanese uh, this Japanese chap who sort of goes to the authority and says they're planning to break out and provides all this. In, I've forgotten his name, but I forget everything. Get me head if it wasn't screwed on. 
uh, but he gives a load of details, which is sort of is more than the camp intelligence authorities, you know, the, the intelligence officers of the camp, all the rest of them worked out in months. And he goes and tells them that something's brewing. Uh, I, I found that very interesting. Uh, I didn't remember. I don't remember what happened to him because the name, I've, the, the names do blur. Um, oh, they do, that, indeed. That, that, that's cultural, and it's my fault, not not the book's fault or anything uh, else. Um, do you remember this guy? How did you yeah, find it's, out it's, about him? It's a great story. I found out about this uh, <laughs> really easily, actually, because the failures of intelligence. <laughs> yeah, it was literally that the failures of intelligence. It's just it's just mind boggling that this was staring them in the face that the Japanese are going to do something. The Jap and not even going to do something. The Japanese are planning to break out of the camp. And yet we still let it happen. And the reason we know about this report from this informer is he was a Korean who didn't particularly like the Japanese. He'd been oh, press ganged into the yeah. Japanese army. So he, he wasn't any fan of the Japanese. And on his first day, he overheard Japanese prisoners talking to the new arrivals and saying, we're planning, we're hoarding weapons. We're planning to break out of the camp and um, we're going to attack the guards and break out of the camp. And so knowing that this could earn him a little bit of favor, he went to the authorities and told them. Um, that, and they believed him, absolutely believed him, um, so much so that they issued reports that they distributed not just to the Kara camp but to all the prisoner war camps in Australia, saying we've got good information that the Japanese, any Japanese prisoners in your custody are not going to put up with it anymore and they're going to rise up and, and break out of the camp. And it was the, the weird thing about it was it was taken so seriously that they decided they were going to remove half of the Japanese prisoners, more than half, two-thirds of the Japanese prisoners were going to be taken out of the camp and moved away to try and mitigate the risk. And ironically, that was the spark that led to the whole breakout was the threat that they were going to move the prisoners away. So it's this weird convoluted circle where the Australians knew in order to try and make sure it didn't happen, they actually caused it to happen. So bizarre situation. But I mean, the Australians, and I said this in the book, should have taken a lot of blame for what occurred, that a little bit of, you know, better, better practice in the camp um, would have meant that it didn't occur at all. I believe his name was uh, Matsumoto. Matsumoto, that's him. Japanese yeah. name, but he was a Korean um, yeah. because obviously during the war, the Japanese, you know, did everything they could yeah. to make the Asian people. Look at daggers at you, you bastard. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote it down yesterday. <laughs> That's a good part of the story, though, and he was an interesting character to, um, to you know, tell the story of. Now, uh, so take us through the what, what happens. Then. So uh, do they actually do anything other than plan to move prisoners? Or, or is it still just this five-foot-tall barbed wire? Uh, there's a couple of Vickers machine guns badly sighted. You make a big yeah. point about that. And there seems to be a Bren or two about and rifles. What do, what, what, what do, are there any, prepara- any, any increase in security at all? Well, this is the extraordinary thing. Yes, they took some um, superficial precautions. As you say, they put in these couple of machine guns. They, uh, you know, they issued hand grenades in very limited quantities to the garrison without giving them any training on how they, they would work. I mean, that's obviously not going to go wrong, is it? Let's just distribute some Gary's an expert on hand grenades. And do your best. <laughs> <laughs> so they gave everyone more. I mean, the cooks received rifles all of a sudden. The cooks hadn't been armed before, but now they received a rifle and were you know, sort of shown how to use it. So... They did a few sort of precautionary things, but the the when I was writing this book, I was just constantly frustrated as I read about what had gone on because I just thought this never should have occurred. There should be no book to write about the Kara breakout because it never should have occurred. The story of the Kara breakout should be the Japanese prisoners were getting a bit cranky and looking for an opportunity to do something and the Australians stamped it out efficiently. That should have been the story of the Kara breakout. It wouldn't make for much of a book, um, but that's what should have happened because... <laughs> Not only were they going to move these 
prisoners out of the camp um, to mitigate the risk. Um, that was a very sensible move. They absolutely should have done that, but I couldn't believe it. They gave them two days warning. They said to them on on a Friday, at Friday lunchtime, they said to them, on Monday, we are going to move half the prisoners out of the camp. They gave them the full weekend to know about it. It was, I, I just, why would they do that? Why would they tell them? Why wouldn't they just march them onto trucks and get them out if they thought there was this big risk? And so they told them at fri- on Friday, I, I still have no idea why, they just felt that they should, they should inform the Japanese that we're moving you out of the camp. I told them on Friday and the Japanese just said, okay, we have to do something now. And so Friday night, the breakout occurred. So just yes. constant frustrations. Not they, There weren't enough men. They didn't ask for any more men to protect the camp. The machine gun they had in place to guard B compound was not manned. They only they used to put troops on it um, in the daytime, and then at nighttime they'd go back to their barracks and just leave the machine gun standing on its own. Um, they, they didn't have supporting riflemen for the machine guns. They F tower on the far side of the camp that looked over B compound and another compound as well had one man in it, and he had an Owen gun, which is a little submachine gun, and a few hand grenades. That that was the only protection for that entire eastern side of the camp. It just it's just frustrating. And Friday night was payday, so the the troops were all having a bit of a piss up in the you know in the canteen. It was just it was you know just a terrible situation. They were told two days beforehand because they had to have time to pack. Exactly, <laughs> fold their socks and make their beds. Yeah. <laughs> Not to mention sharpen their weapons and prepare to set fire to their huts, yeah. which is what they actually what? did. What were the improvised weapons they had? Because I, I like that bit as well. T- t- tell us a bit about that. The, the Japanese made the, some of. I mean, my favourite was the sharpened spoon. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's a there's a couple of elements to this. There was there's a long there's a big debate about how premeditated the breakout was and how spontaneous it was, and it was a key feature of the the later investigations um, because obviously it made the Australians look pretty bad if the Japanese had been planning this for a long time. Um, so it's a balance. The Japanese were intending to do something and the something was break out of the camp, but they hadn't quite worked out. So they'd worked out the strategy. You know, you taught me about strategy and tactics, Pete. They'd worked out the strategy, but not the tactics. And so the night of the breakout, they um, they basically set to work with the weapons. My favourite one, Pete, the sharpened spoons. One guy took the, um, the steel plates out of his shoe and sharpened those on the concrete. <laughs> so they weren't particularly... But they weren't particularly well armed, but... Again, that was the point. It was an attack against machine guns to show this warrior spirit that they had. The number one thing they did have a lot of was knives, which is ridiculous that they were allowed to have access to knives without them being properly you know, counted and accounted for. Uh, and the other thing was to baseball bats. They were allowed to play baseball and they, they, had, they recovered some preposterous amount, like nearly 100 baseball bats they recovered. So it seems that every time a Japanese person said, can I have a baseball bat, they were just issued with one. Um, so a preposterous number of baseball bats, but there's a photo in the um, book. I mean, I shouldn't laugh. It's actually, it shows the desperation of these men, but the photo in the book shows a selection of the improvised weapons, most of which are sharpened butter knives and, and baseball bats and things like that. But there's the neck off a guitar that had been, someone had bashed nails, they'd ripped the neck off a guitar and bashed nails into the head of the guitar. So, you know, they, they didn't have access to a lot of weapons. Some guys just grabbed a lump of firewood from the fire Um it wasn't going to be a suicide charge, but it wa- they, they did want to take the battle to the Australians and kill as many Australians in uniform as they could. Um, but it was part of the mentality, we'll take whatever we can get and we'll just go and we'll just charge and that sort of warrior spirit. Uh, and that's exactly as it uh, sort of turned out. The numbers of Japanese that ended up committing suicide with the sharper knives that they carried in their own hands 
was really quite horrific. And so it was they were it was certainly a um, an audacious attack, but incredible bravery, um, just incredible bravery. So the uh, the breakout occurs on the uh, night of the fifth of August, isn't it, Matt? That's right, in the early hours, about two a.m. So they'd been told that afternoon that the move was on; they were going to move all the prisoners to Hay, and so. <clears throat> that afternoon and evening, the prisoners all got together and they voted on whether they would break out or not. Quite famously, on a piece of toilet paper, they wrote down whether they were for or against. So it gave this impression that it was a democratic decision, and it was in some instances, but in other instances, men were press ganged into it and basically just went along because they felt it was the right thing. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Today. So take us through the actual, your fa- you can't tell the whole story, buy the book, listeners. And exactly, viewers. buy the book. Uh, but uh, just give us an outline of what happened that terrible night, because it was a terrible night. It was absolutely horrific. And, <clears throat> excuse me, in the book, um, that's why I call it the, uh, what I say is we shouldn't think about this as a prison breakout in the sense of trying to earn freedom. It was nothing to do with that. This was a battle, pure and simple. The Japanese wanted to fight and kill as many Australians as they could. And so... That was the point of the whole thing. So the Japanese, uh, at about 2 o'clock in the morning, um, Toyishima, that zero pilot I'd mentioned, the first Australian prisoner, he had a bugle with him, an army bugle, and he blew the bugle, and that was the signal to begin the breakout. So the Japanese charged, so a thou- nearly a 1,000, not everyone participated, but close to a 1,000 Japanese charged out of their huts. They set fire to their sleeping huts. And they basically charged towards the fences. So there were three distinct parts of the breakouts. I'll give you a very quick overview. One group charged into the middle of the camp to try and to try and let the Japanese officers out and to try and attack the guards straight up the guts of the camp. Um, that did not go very successfully because of obviously the, Jap- the Australians just opened fire on the Japanese as they surged in the middle of the camp. Um, one group ran towards the far wire uh, on the other side of the compound, that area where I said was only guarded by one man with an Owen gun. And they broke through that part of the wire. Uh, and actually, that was where the most escapees occurred. About 300 men managed to get through the wire um, at that point. Um, and they broke out into the countryside. 
Um, but the main part of the attack and what the Japanese really wanted to do was they wanted to attack one of the machine guns. They saw that the machine gun was unmanned uh, in at nighttime, um, and they thought if we can get to that gun, we can then turn that machine gun. It was a Vickers gun just on a, a truck trailer, on, just on the other side of the wire, only 50 metres on the other side of the wire. If we can get through the fence and get to that gun, we can turn it on the garrison and we can kill a lot of Australians. Then we're going to take over the camp and then we'll see what we can do next. Maybe we'll launch an attack on the army camp next door. They, you know, they didn't really know what they're going to do at that point, but the machine gun was the key. Uh, and so the, the the most horrific aspect of the of the entire breakout probably was what I refer to in the chapter that was the race for the Vickers gun. Because imagine the situation. So about 300 Japanese charged towards that gun. So they had to get through three lines of fences and then they had to get... Um, they wanted to get to this machine gun. And so the two Aussie gunners who were tasked with manning that uh, that gun, um, Privates Hardy and Jones, um, were asleep in their barracks. Uh, they heard the prisoners breaking out. They jumped up. They threw on their greatcoats over their pyjamas. They pulled on their boots, didn't even do up the laces, and ran to the machine gun in their pyjamas. And it was a, literally a race between the 300 charging Japanese armed with knives and baseball bats and these two Aussie privates, both in their 40s, um, and uh, just and the and Jones and Hardy managed to get to the gun before the Japanese and open fire on the Japanese and cause lots of casualties and another machine gun opened fire as well and a lot of Japanese were killed in the wire, um, but there were just too many Japanese and eventually they got through the fence they got to the trailer uh, Jones and Hardy would have been forgiven for um, you know fleeing in the face of this but they didn't they stayed on the gun and they actually eventually disabled the gun just before they were overwhelmed. Um, and the Japanese overwhelmed them and killed them both on the trailer, bashed and stabbed them to death. Um, but the Japanese were not able to get the gun in action against the Australians because Hardy and Jones had successfully disabled it. Um, and so that sort of upset the main plan of the Japanese attack. But that's, you know, that's a really a terribly tragic and sad moment. Just imagine how awful those last moments would have been for those two old men. And you just think to yourself, why the hell am I even here? You know, you would have been thinking, I'm out in the middle of nowhere I'm way too old. They were both First World War veterans, but neither had served. So this was their second war. Neither had fought in the front lines. They'd, they'd both served in the army during the First World War. And here they are in their second war and just, you know, both of them in their mid-40s. You'd think, what the hell am I even doing here? But very heroic. They fought to the end and both of them were eventually awarded the George Cross uh, posthumously for, for their work on the gun. So the civilian equivalent of, or the, the non-combat equivalent of the Victoria Cross. So um, that's one of the most compelling stories of the of the breakout. It certainly was. It was... Uh... I mean, they're real heroes, in, it seems uh, to, to me, uh, especially disabling the gun. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, to have the it presence was, um, of mind. Yeah, it was just one of those things, I think, you know, you people in those those moments and, you know, they, they would have known as well, you know, as, as the Japanese you know, swarmed all around them. They're, I mean, they're on the back of a truck, for God's sake. I mean, it's just, it's just terrible. Once the Japanese got through the wire and were swarming all around them, they would have known that they were gone. Uh, yeah, and the last thing they did was um, disable that gun, so that that's that obviously that saved a huge number of lives and also changed the entire course of the breakout because now the Japanese didn't sort of quite know what to do now that they'd failed in the attack on the machine gun. So it was just yeah, absolutely heroic and um, extremely well deserved those George crosses. Can we talk about numbers for a little while, Matt? So, yeah, how sure many POD- POWs actually managed to escape on that night? Okay, so there's 1,104 men answered the roll that morning when they did the roll call. So that's the total number of Japanese. Um, a fair number of the Japanese, probably 20 or so, or maybe 20 or 30 committed suicide before the breakout occurred. So either hung themselves or some of them stabbed themselves with knives. 
so ritual suicide. And we should point out again that our Western view of suicide um, is very different to the way the Japanese saw it. And even veterans that I saw were interviewed, Japanese survivors, decades after the breakout, were still very proud of the men that had chosen to commit suicide. Um, so I think a, just under a 1,000 actually participated in the breakout, so very close to a 1,000 but not quite a 1,000. Um, all of the ones that attacked into the main area of the camp, which was known as Broadway, none of them escaped. Um, some of the men who attacked the machine gun, that was where the most casualties occurred, but some of the men who got through the wire at the machine gun took off into the bush and a lot got through um, in the, down the fence I described before near F-Tower, the very poorly armed bloke in F-Tower. So probably somewhere around 300, a bit over 300 managed to actually get out of the camp. Um, so 230-odd, probably something like 200 and just over 200 were killed within the camp um, during the breakout attempt. Uh, and then there's more than 300 who now got out of the camp. And once they're out of the camp, they just disappeared into the night and just headed off into the bush. So that was really the next phase of the whole saga was we've got hundreds of Japanese roaming around the countryside. Uh, and so what do we do about it? Oh, this is the old oral history question. <laughs> what happened next? <laughs> it's two I'm questions. glad you asked. What happened next, and why did you do that? But this is slightly different. What happened next? <laughs> isn't the, isn't the common question? What's the most exciting thing that happened to you no, during that, the war? That, that was another interview. I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I was much more boring they, um, than that. They um, no. So this was the next, and again, I you know, I call this the great roundup in the in the in the book because again, and just another fascinating chapter. The Aussie authorities were obviously incredibly embarrassed about this. Um, from the earliest moments when they first, when reports first reached Sydney you know, during the breakout that something was happening at Cowra, the immediate thought of all the authorities is we've got 20,000 Australian prisoners being held by the Japanese. So we have to manage this situation really, really carefully because we don't want the Japanese taking retribution against the Australians that they're holding on to. Not that the Japanese needed any excuse to obviously mishandle prisoners in their care, but they didn't want to do anything to exacerbate the problem. So that was the big deal. So the cover-up began from the moments that the Japanese first got out and the authorities didn't even want to tell the people of Kaura that the breakout had occurred because they didn't want word leaking out. And so obviously that was considered pretty bad. I mean, a couple, you know, three guards had been killed within the camp during the breakout. <clears throat> so they knew that there were armed and very fanatical, dangerous men roaming the countryside. So the first question was, we've got to tell the people of Kaura that there's armed prisoners roaming around. Um, and for, it took nine days to round them all up. So this incredible chapter of the whole story was the interactions of local people with the escaped Japanese prisoners. The Japanese were very clear that they were not going to harm civilians. It was only uh, men in uniform that they would attack, and they stuck to that very, very closely. So the, the, the local people weren't actually under threat, but they didn't realise that at the time, of course. And um, I, there's a I lot of very, very interesting reports. I found that very interesting that the Japanese had made that, so, I mean, that was a definite policy that, well, policy that, that they, they didn't, they weren't going to hurt Australian civilians. And I found that quite interesting that, that they took that view. Well, yeah, they, I mean, uh, restoring honour was a very big part of the, the this whole saga. And so I think that they felt that obviously, you know, hurting innocent women and children was not part of that. You know, th we are warriors and we are, it, it explains the mentality very well. If you think about it from the terms of, oh, let's just get out of the camp and do whatever we can. It doesn't make a lot of sense. But if you think about warriors trying to restore shame that they'd lost on the battlefield, uh, it, it makes a lot more sense. And, um, you know, in a very Japanese sense, it was very well organised. You know, they had a committee meetings before the breakout to discuss how it was going to happen and who was going to do what. But the leaders 
emphasise very strongly no civilians are to be hurt, and that absolutely happened. So no, I should say, interestingly, no prisoners hurt civilians, but that's not to say it didn't work <laughs> in reverse. <laughs> and there was a couple of incidents that were pretty uh, unsavoury that I came book, across. <laughs> yeah, the main one which... You know, which almost turned this from, you know, it was bad enough that this breakout in a camp had occurred and soldiers had been kill, killing other soldiers. But then a bloke went out with his, the day after the breakout, when everyone in town was pretty excited, uh, a bloke went out with his young son. What he told authorities was, we wanted to get some rabbits to feed the dogs. So he went out with his shotgun to get some rabbits, but obviously he hoped he could be part of the action and he got his wish. He ran into a group of Japanese. Um, and in his report, the police said that they tried to circle around us and they were going to attack us and we were threatened for our life. So he opened fire with a shotgun and killed two of these unfortunate prisoners. Um, so, again, I made that point in the book that it was one thing that this escape had occurred in a sort of a prison army compound environment, but the idea that civilians were now roaming around the countryside shooting unarmed Japanese um, took the whole thing to a new and scary diplomatic level that how are the Japanese going to reply to this? And so that whole bit was actually very strongly covered up uh, in the whole thing and it was very hushed up, the idea that um, that one that, or that a couple of Japanese had been killed by a, by a civilian with a shotgun. But, yeah, as you can see from all of these yarns, um, some of them quite humorous as well. You know, one guy set up a trap for Japanese outside his farm and then the, his dog chased a cat into the trap and he... You know, he injured himself chasing the dog. And, you know, all these sort of... A lot of them were quite humorous stories. Another one about a couple of, uh, you know, a farmer, a couple of Japanese approached him, so he locked him in the chook pen and waited for the authorities to arrive. So a number of humorous stories, but also some quite um, sobering ones um, that described, um, you know, army authorities being called by a farmer to say there's a bunch of Japanese just sort of loitering around. You know, they're just sort of sitting around. Um, and then the the soldiers turning up and shooting them all on sight, and you know a, a number of unsavoury stories as well. So it was a there, there's not much about this entire story that is glorious, or you know it's it's all it's all pretty horrific stuff. Now you mentioned that the whole thing uh, ended after about ten days with the roundup of the remaining prisoners, um, and you also mentioned that. The, the sort of cover-up started. Now, the Australian government did hold an inquiry, didn't they? And one of the things they found was that the prisoners were treated in uh, uh, alignment with the Con- Geneva Convention. Uh, do you think that that, you know, absolved them of any responsibility? It's a great question, and like so many things, there's so many different angles to answer it. So, yes, the Australian... Well done. Well done. Oh, You're working proud of him. Um... Okay, a couple of angles on this. Yes, there were three inquiries held, in fact, um, as was required under the terms of the Geneva Convention, Um, uh, even though Japan was not a signatory to the Geneva Convention. um, They still treated the prisoners in this way in the hope that the Japanese would reciprocate. Um, It wasn't the Geneva Convention as we know it today, by the way. That didn't come until after the war, but the terms that were starting to be spelt out that would lead to the Geneva Convention. Um, which basically called for prisoners to be well-treated and, if any of them were harmed, to hold an inquiry to find out who was responsible and to lay charges in a military court against anyone responsible. So we certainly did that in our as part of our responsibility, um, but from the outset it was a whitewash. Um, and it's funny, and I was in two minds about this. The first military inquiry was a little bit of a joke. They were actually, when the government put the military inquiry in place, they actually gave them the specific terms for what they wanted them to find. And they said in no uncertain terms, we want you to hold an inquiry that blames the Japanese and finds no fault with the Australians. 
And so that's effectively <clears throat> what the military inquiry did. So they, t- you know, they, they interviewed guards. Uh, there was about 60 witnesses, they called, including Japanese prisoners. Uh, and they interviewed them all. And then they drew the conclusion, surprisingly, that the Japanese were completely to blame um, and the Australians were not at fault. So the interesting thing was, even though that was a complete whitewash, that inquiry, and just gave the results that the government wanted, they were actually spot on. I mean, who are you going to blame for the breakout of the camp? It was the Japanese prisoners. Did the Australian guards act with restraint? In the most part, they did. You know, they 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 fired on Japanese prisoners when they when their life was at risk, and they stopped firing when uh, you know after the whole thing was over. So you you actually can't fault the findings of the inquiry, but they got to it more by luck than uh, than, than than good work. Gary, have another question. Otherwise, well, well, actually, Gary, just one other thing I just want to say about that. I just, I just remembered is that part of one of the chapters of the book. I don't know if you, I, I know that you guys didn't have time. I didn't give you time to read the whole thing cover to cover. Um, one of the facets, okay. uh, another inquiry was held, and this is one part of the story that should be told, and we should certainly remember, is that uh, the army camp that I mentioned next to the prisoner war camp, um, they were instructed to assist with the roundup of prisoners, um, but. Again, it was done in such a farcical and incompetent fashion. So the prisoners, uh, sorry, the army guys at the training camp are all sort of 18-year-old recruits. They decided that they, were, they couldn't be trusted with carrying rifles out, sort of rounding up prisoners. And so they instructed them to go in in groups of 20. So 20 recruits led by an officer. The 20 recruits would carry only bayonets in scabbards, no weapons whatsoever, just a bayonet in a scabbard. Now, the first part of that is why didn't they at least give them unloaded rifles? Because... You know, a, a bayonet, as I said in the book, the, a bayonet attached to a rifle is a much more formidable weapon than a bayonet held in a hand. And plus, the Japanese wouldn't have known the rifles were unloaded when they were pointed at their face. So they should have done that. But instead, they didn't. They just gave them bayonets that they just carried. Their officers were instructed not to carry any weapons whatsoever. The officers, I have no idea why that was the case, but the officers were told, don't carry don't weapons at all. I think that the, the commanding officer afterwards at an inquiry said that he was worried that he didn't want any more Japanese to be killed because he was worried about the fate of Japan of Australian prisoners in Japanese hands and all this stuff it was just ridiculous. But anyway, um, fast forward to the story of um, Lieutenant Harry Doncaster, who was a veteran of North Africa and Greece, um, leading a bunch of twenty young recruits. Dark was falling by the time they sent them out. It was getting dark. He's completely unarmed, and they came across a bunch of Japanese that they were trying to round up. Um, the young recruits panicked and ran down the hill, left Doncaster on his own, which is understandable. Um, and the Japanese swarmed all over him and beat him to death. Uh, so again, you just so he was the fourth Australian to be killed in the breakout. Was an unarmed officer rounding up prisoners in the dark. It just so another inquiry was held by the army, and this time it was a proper military inquiry to 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 work out why that had been allowed to occur. And uh, there were several stern words and reprimands, but no one was really held to account for the death of Harry Doncaster. But that was just another chapter that just never should have occurred. And, uh, it, it's a terrible story all round, isn't it? Um, um, did, did, it? It's the wrong word for it. Did you enjoy writing it? I think because you can. End, we all write about terrible things, but you can. It's just interesting finding out about these things to get getting to know. It's like detective story at times, isn't it? Just finding out. It absolutely was, Pete. And when I started, I didn't realise the depth of what I would find out because I, um, as I said, I grew up with this story. My grandparents, I, I grew up in a town called West Wyalong, which is about an hour down the road from Cowra. And my um, my grandparents used to tell me the stories about the Cowra breakout when I was a kid. And, um, you know, and they talked about how the Japanese prisoners used to come through the town. The trucks used to come through the town when they were delivering the prisoners. And 
I remember my grandmother saying she saw her first Japanese prisoner. She was surprised how tall he was because she expected to see all these little men like she'd seen in the propaganda. So, she wasn't called um, Mrs. Smith, was she? <laughs> oh dear. We'll let that one slide. Um, but no, um, the um, no, I d- yeah, I did enjoy it. I enjoyed finding those stories. I was horrified a lot of the time. I was frustrated a lot of the time. I think my my long suffering wife was, um, you know. Every time she'd run in the room going, what's wrong? Because another, Jesus Christ, from me. Every time I realised another terrible thing that had occurred. So a lot of frustration, um, a lot of sadness in telling this story because it just never should have happened. This, you know, I said before, this, this never should have happened. Um, but, yes, I did enjoy um, revealing, the, revealing the story. Just really, it's a really great human story. At the end of the day, it is a human story. It's about emotions and, and people driven to, you know, desperation and, and you know, and the, and, the, and the way people responded to that. So it was a very human story. So, yeah, I, I really enjoyed telling those stories. Now, it, it, whilst, you know, the uh, the breakout comes to an end, that's not the end for the camp, is it? The camp continues beyond that point. Uh, yeah, the fact, camp is... It goes on to beyond the war and, and, and repatriation. Yeah, exactly. So the the other aspect of the story that was interesting was the, um, the civilian internees, which always played a part in the story as well. It wasn't just prisoners of war that were held in these camps. It was civilian internees and, and camps like Cowra and the other ones continued to be used. But yeah, they, it was the camp was still open in the in the late 1940s because it took a long time to get people sorted out. Um, so most of the Japanese were sent home in 46 because it wasn't a big priority getting um, getting prisoners home from the war. Um, but yeah, civilian internees were still held there and um, the camp existed in one form or another until about 1949 when it was um, hurriedly and under the cloak of darkness sort of torn down and buildings were, a lot of them were sold off. They were prefabricated buildings, so they were sold off and there's reports that, oh yeah, that was the wool shed on my farm was an old Japanese, you know, used to be a Japanese sleeping hut from the camp and um, but then it was torn down in the, in the 40s and um, and the whole thing was then swept under the rug for a very, very long time and you know, this empty paddock, I think, is a good representation of the whole story that it was wiped from the face of the earth. And I think the authorities hoped the whole story would be wiped from memory because it was a long time before, um, even in the 1960s, Harry Gordon, who wrote a really good book about the Cara Breakout in the 60s, um, he had to petition the government under sort of the early Freedom of Information Act to even get information about it because the government was still <laughs> trying to cover up what had gone on in Cara. So, you know, extraordinary story all around. Now, uh, the book's called The Cowra Breakout. Now, the publisher, Hatchet, uh, is it coming out in anywhere else in England? You, you can it probably is. Get it's it on being Amazon. distributed. Yeah. I've, got, I've got a copy of it here. It's being distributed. Um, there it is. Lovely shiny. cover. So it's on sale. Has it got a picture um, of you on it? it we got don't a tiny have little, We don't got have a tiny little picture of, of me down oh, the bottom there. When you were young, small. before your hair <laughs> went grey. You you probably took that photo, Pete. It's a Gallipoli, I think. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, so no, it's the book's out now in Australia um, and also being distributed in the UK. So select um, select importers uh, bring it in in the UK. Um, so you can find it there as well. Um, and yeah, it's it's a really good story. I think it's a funny thing. I think in Australia, there's a lot of people that know it and will go, "Oh, I'm interested to hear about this story again." And a whole heap of people that go, "I've never heard of this before." You know, you always see the line, why weren't we taught this in school? Um, so I think there's going to be a lot of interest from people to sort of relive this uh, quite interesting chapter of World War II history. Yeah, I mean, I was really surprised, Matt, because as I said, I've never heard of it. And uh, one of the things I discovered was how many times it's been depicted in films and literature. Yeah. There was a, a four and a half hour miniseries, uh, uh, The Cowra Breakout in 1984. But my favourite um, 
was uh, on that day, our lives were lighter than toilet paper. The Great Cower a Breakout. What a great, great, great title. It is, and I'm, I'm a bit disappointed that you didn't pick up something similar. Yeah, yeah. Some, something to do with toilet paper with would have been in interesting it. on the cover. With fishes. <laughs> I think fish and to toilet di- paper. Die Like the Carp, what Harry Gordon called his original book. But um, It's just the worst you title that, ever. Isn't it terrible? That's, yeah, it's a terrible title. But a good book, great book, good terrible book. title. But, Gary, you mentioned the miniseries, and the miniseries was actually one of the things that got me into military history because I was a 10-year-old when that miniseries came out. I watched the whole thing. And it wasn't a very accurate depiction of the Cowra breakout, but because it was my local area and I just thought it was a really engaging story. As a 10-year-old, I thought it was amazing. I watched it about a thousand times. And um, it was one, that was one of the things that I would mark as, what, uh, as giving me an interest in the military history. And then my dad took me over to the camp, um, which wasn't a camp anymore. It was just an empty paddock. And he took me over for a bit of a look around. Watch out for snakes. Oh, we should... Watch out for snakes. That's why I mentioned that in the book. We should also, I should also mention the cemetery um, that's at Cowra now because the Cowra does an incredible job of remembering this chapter and there's a, an incredible Japanese garden, which is very out of place in rural New South Wales. Um, the remains of the camp, which is now a, they do a very good job of pointing out where various things went on and people can encourage to visit it. But, of course, the cemetery there where all the Japanese that were killed in the breakout are buried. Um, and in addition to that, every Japanese national who died in Australia during the Second World War is buried in that cemetery. So about 550 people. Um, so airmen that were shot down in raids over Darwin, sailors whose ships were sunk in the great naval battles, Coral Sea and things like that. Um, and a lot of civilian internees are also buried there alongside the prisoners. So it's that the Japanese war cemetery. It's the only Japanese war cemetery outside Japan. Um, and it's a pretty remarkable place to visit, again, in the middle of the Australian bush, an unexpected uh, place to find so many Japanese buried. So that's a so a, a big shout out to the people of Kara. Um, it, they do a great job of remembering everything that went on there. So so what's next, Matt? Uh, it's a treadmill, isn't it? Writing books, you'll be on your You're next right. one, I expect. What's next? Yeah, well, I actually I actually did a uh, I just I've just signed a three a three book deal with my publisher, so um, which is exciting. So Kara is the first one, and then um, I'm working on a book that you guys I know will be very interested in on the Second Battle of Krithia. At Gallipoli, and you guys, I was listening to your podcast about it just the other day, um, which is a, fa- I mean, you guys know that's a fantastic story. A ter- again, a terrible, I must, I'm, I've got this theme of writing about these great tragedies that should never have occurred, but I think the Second Battle of Krithia fits pretty strongly in there. And we as Australians, you might not notice this, but we tend to focus very much on what Australia did during the wars, oh, not perhaps at the expense of other people. Um, but the one thing we didn't realise is that we sent a brigade of troops and the New Zealanders sent a brigade of troops yeah. down to yes. Helles during the Gallipoli campaign to participate in one of the big attacks, one of the big British and French attacks down at Helles, uh, the Second Battle of Krithia. So I'm writing the story of uh, the whole battle, but obviously from a particular Australian and New Zealand perspective. Um, and then a third book, uh, yet to be decided, a third book. So if anyone's got the ideas, let me know. Uh, so be I lazy. Decided. Be lazy. Third <laughs> Battle of Krithia. That <laughs> <laughs> the Australians didn't participate in. That's no. Great idea. So I'll write about the battles of Krithia from an Australian perspective and then from an Australian perspective, a battle that didn't involve Australians. That'll be Absolutely. That'll go well. I remember so, a great day out when we went to Australia, objectives of Gallipoli that we never reached. So we went to Maltepe, do you remember? Oh, that's right, and yes, it, yes. And yes. ended up killing Bahia. And the day was battlefields that weren't. It was a great day exactly. out. Exactly. Yeah, it was a good fun day. We uh, we visited a lot of sites where fighting didn't occur at Gallipoli. Didn't happen, yes. which, which was pretty amazing. There's no point looking for relics up there. But, no, um, absolutely not. Well, thank what you, you very much. What do you call it? The big, ba- the big bastard, Gallipoli. 
killer bear. The big bass killer bear here. That's it. Never got anywhere near. Thank you very much, Matt, for for joining us on Chatter Natter. And I, I would just uh, a lot of our listeners perhaps aren't are familiar with the Cara Breakup. People like Gary, who are you know led sheltered lives, but. This is a fantastic story. And, and you know, if you want to read something just a bit different about the Second World War, then The Cower of Breakout by Matt Learn <laughs> is your, uh, is your uh, go-to choice. Uh, as, it, as Matt said, you, it's easy to buy in Australia. And if you look around a bit, you'll find it in England. Thank you very much, e- Matt. Ebook too, I should throw out. Ebooks available of across course, the world, of e- course. Ooh, well, you're very young and modern. I was thinking when you were talking about that film series when you were about five and <laughs> ten or something, and I must have been in my early 50s then. <laughs> well, I think he misheard me, Pete, because I said it was 1984, and he said he was 10. I, I think I think he thought I said 1964. Yeah, that's right. No. Yeah, 1984, I was, yeah, 35, yeah. <laughs> oh, uh, All right. Thank you, Jets. It's been good fun. Cheers, Matt. Thanks, Matt. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?